0: Well, I've got a lot of things on the list because it's a zero episode, so let's just get into this and make it a quick 30. How's that sound? Sure. The quicker the better, as my wife likes to say. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Podcast. This is the only podcast on the entire interwebs that is about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and even under the gaming table. I'm talking board games, tabletop games. I've got the top to my trees with me. If that's not an expression, it is now Sean
1: McCoy. Hey, how's it going?
0: Hey, I'm doing all right. Are you asking me or are you asking the knaves, knights, and listeners alike?
1: I'm asking the knaves, knights, and listeners alike, how are they doing? Please respond now or I will leave the show.
0: So, what are our knaves, Sean? What are our knaves?
1: Our knaves are our listeners. They're the people at home listening to this right now. If you are hearing the words coming out of my mouth, congratulations, you have become a knave. Who are our knights? Our knights are special listeners who send in audio recordings of themselves telling a story that has to do with tabletop gaming in some way. I think we're going to have a Knave Tonight submission today. Oh, we are. Super easy to do. We'd love for people to send in their stories so that we could talk about them and laugh at them. It's a great way to be humiliated in front of dozens of people. Sean, who are our nobles? You came up with this term, and I don't really ever remember what it refers to. You still
0: don't remember who the nobles are. There are guests that come onto the show, Sean. That's right. Sean, why am I quizzing you on this in this episode?
1: Uh, This is what we call a zero episode, meaning that it's episode 150, so it ends in a zero. And on every zero episode, we like to reset the scale a little bit and uh, tell you who we are and what's going on. So it's a good place to jump in if uh, you haven't listened to the podcast before. Since we have 150 episodes now, starting back... Sean,
0: you're right. It's a zero episode. Yay. And for that, we put on the F-Zero music to indicate it's the zero episode. So if you've been a knave all along, you know this whole rigmarole. But if you're new to the show, Sean and I and all the other knaves, knights, and nobles alike, want to thank you for tuning in. We have a whole bunch of different segments that we do on this show. And we're going to... Fly through them really quickly on this episode to give you a little taste of everything. That way you don't feel left behind in the dust. If you're new, you can feel like an old pro at the Tuesday Night Podcast just from listening to one of these zero episodes. What's one of your favorite segments, Sean?
1: I think my favorite segment is always Table Talk. I really enjoy talking about the games Sean, we've Sean. played. It's time for the Table Talk.
0: It's Table Talk. This is a segment where we talk about the games that we've been playing. <laughs> Sean, what have you been playing lately?
1: I've actually been playing a lot of That's Not Lemonade. With whom? I play a lot with my niece and nephew, though it's starting to make the rounds. I played with my mom and dad, and we just played Pitch Deck for the first time.
0: Ooh, there's something new. Pitch deck. Now, Sean, we have a bit of a pitch deck in our show, if you will. What am I talking about in that we do a pitch deck
1: type thingy? I think you're talking about elevator pitches.
0: Ding. I am, Sean. What the hell are elevator pitches?
1: Elevator pitches are one minute long. Pitches about a game trying to show you you're every-
0: right. Elevator pitches are one minute long at most segments where you describe a game, but we give each other a character. So I want you to describe Pitch Deck as an advertising man, an ad man, or as they like to call, a madman. You are, if anything, John ham's character. What was John Hamm's character in Mad Men?
1: Dim Diesel.
0: No, it's not Dim Diesel. Do you, Don
1: ever- Deloyes.
0: Have you never seen Mad Men?
1: I know his name, but I don't think you know his name.
0: Oh, I know his name. Uh
1: Don <laughs> Draper.
0: Don Draper. That's right. <laughs> that's right, Don Draper. Sean, you're the madman Don Draper or someone akin to Don Draper, and you're gonna give me a pitch for pitch deck in
1: one minute or less. Are you ready, sir? I am. Me, SBJ. What do all people want out of this world? For some, it's sex or charisma. For others, it's the simple feel of a cool twenty billion dollars. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you pitch deck. The reinvigorated, renewed game based on, I want to say, snake oil, where you'll be taking turns pitching companies made up of a crazy word and another concept like Uber or Isis. Combining those and pitching them to your investors, the person with the most investors wins the round. I'm Don Draper.
0: Sean, that was a pretty kick-ass Don Draper, I'm not going to lie. Thank you. But this is cool because Pitch Deck is a game in that we could almost play around right here on the podcast. Anytime we actually have a game that we play throughout an entire episode of the podcast, we no longer call it the Tuesday Night Podcast. Instead, we call it the Tuesday Night. Fill in the blank, Sean. The Tuesday
1: Night Playathon.
0: <laughs> playcast is the correct answer, Sean. Instead of a podcast, it becomes mm. a playcast. So close. For instance, we had an entire episode where we played Sean McCoy's, that's you Sean, Mothership. The sci-fi horror RPG. But Sean, can you give me an example of one of the pitches that you remember that you had to do?
1: Sure. I took a picture of the winning pitches. So let me just pull that up on my phone so I can refresh my memory.
0: No problem. By the way, while you're bringing it up on your phone to look at the winning pitches, I will say that this game is by Palm Court, the same creators as Monikers. Is that correct? Does it say Palm Court on the box there, Sean?
1: It does, yeah. It is the same creators as Monikers. They're personal friends of ours, and I always love their stuff. Their big thing for me is sort of classics with a twist. This is the game Snake Oil, if I understand correctly, but. It is modernized and curated in a really interesting way that people understand it and are able to, to jump right in. I played with my dad and my brothers and my mom, but my mom dropped out early. After I explained the rules, she was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. The model is, you know, when people are describing new internet services, they'll say stuff like, oh, it's like Netflix, but for socks. Right. This game is built based on that entire premise. One of the big ones we had was Hot or Not. And then we all have these cards describing the different kinds of people that the service could be providing for. And the winning one for this was Hot or Not for literally no one. But my favorite was Hot or Not for men's rights activists. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like you said, cleverly curated is the key thing here.
1: Yes, well curated. And I played with my brothers as we all started doing our pitches You get these little recurring inside jokes. We use certain phrases and they pop up in other people's pitches as they learn from each other. And then my dad owns his own business. And so he really looked at it from the way he pitches investors in his meetings. So it was a lot of fun. And I was surprised how easy it was to jump into. Because when I was reading, I was was like, how is anyone going to be able to do this? But it worked. It worked really well. Some of the other winning combinations, we had Tinder for monogamists. We had ISIS for werewolves. And we had GeoCities for time travel.
0: So for the other gaming diehards, how does scoring actually work? Do you just simply bid on who you thought was the funniest? Because I heard the scoring mechanism is different where you don't just say, I vote for Sean or I vote for Sean's dad.
1: I think the scoring mechanism is pretty interesting here. So you have a deck of cards, eight cards, and they have like $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion in it. So here's how it works. So we're all pitching towards one person. It's a judge mechanic game. And that judge picks the winning pitch. They say, okay, it's going to be Viagra for never nudes. And then we all go around the table, draw two cards and secretly put down an amount of money on that pitch. Then at the end of the game, all the different amounts are revealed and whichever idea got the most amount of funding, that person who pitched that idea wins, and the person who put in the most amount of money into that idea also wins. So there are two winners of the game.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, if you had the most well-funded pitch, you win, which is great, but also if you bet on that pitch to win, you also won, which is kinda cool.
0: Yeah, that's really brilliant because it takes the judge mechanic and turns it on its head, you win in two steps. Step one, you have to have the judge for the round choose your pitch. From that point on, the second step is everyone has to bid on how good your pitch was. And I'm assuming that's kept secret until the end, the finals, where you compare all of the best pitches, the judge winning pitches. Once you reveal that, whichever pitch has the most money, if it was your pitch, boom you win the game, but whoever bid the most money on that winning pitch then also wins. Exactly. Wow. Is it so therefore it it's not possible for the same person to win both ways, I'm assuming, because if you win, I'm assuming you don't bid for your own. You don't put Correct. Money. So therefore right. it can never be one person wins both ways. That's brilliant. Sean. There's always
1: two winners. Except when there's a tie, when two pitches have the same amount of funding, which happened in our game. And then everyone's encouraged to go pitch off, pitch off, pitch off. And a card is drawn at random. The two people go head to head and they have to do a pitch with no preparation. You just flip over the next card and they have to pitch on that and then go. So they have to pitch Geocities time travel, go. And then the other person gets a card flipped over after that one's done and they have to pitch on theirs. And then we do another round of voting. So that's the way that there can be one winners in this sort of weird pitch off scenario. But it was fun. It was really fun. They did a good job. They took again an old concept and they made it work. The graphic design is gorgeous. My family really enjoyed it. Although, family-wise, man, there was just so much adult things in there, like Ashley Madison, Tinder, dildo owners, or whatever. And none of that's, like, bad. It was just funny. My little brother was, like, having to pitch this stuff in front of my parents, and he was like, I really wish my parents weren't in this investment meeting. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Oh, one more thing about pitch deck that I like is you only play where one person is the judge once and then it's over, which may be a pretty common thing, but I really enjoyed like we played a four player game. So we went around four times and it was it and it didn't overstay its welcome and it gave a very clear out. Whereas like with some apples to apples of cards against humanity games, it gets kind of loosey goosey and it's like, we'll play till we get bored, which kind of always guarantees that the game always flames out. At some point you're just like, nah, fuck this. Let's get a pizza. Um, But with Pitch Deck, it was like, okay, we're done. It's over. We can move on with our lives and know that we have played Pitch Deck. What have you been playing recently?
0: I played Lindsay Rhodes Countdown Action Edition, and I also played Werewolf Legacy all the way through... Because you know what? Last weekend, Sean, I was at the Buckeye Game Fest in Columbus, Ohio. It was an amazing game conference where it was nothing but players getting together and just playing the games we love. And for some dumbass reason, I stuck around for a werewolf and just played all the way through the entire legacy, which I think is like 13 to 17. I don't know offhand. I should look this shit up. But
1: how many how many how long did that take?
0: Well, let's see. We probably started around 9 at night, and we went until 5 in the morning.
1: So, like, 8 hours.
0: Yeah. It took, like, 8 hours of playing Werewolf Legacy. So, if you like Werewolf and you like Legacy games, then maybe you'll like Werewolf Legacy. Woo-hoo! I mean,
1: how-how! Lindsey Rhodes' game Countdown. Countdown Action Edition, is that right?
0: That is correct, sir.
1: On a scale of 1 to 2, 1 being a 1 on a scale of 1 to 10, and 2 being a 2 on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you score it? 3. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right.
0: That plays. It was cool because, in between the downtime of Werewolf games, that enabled us to play Two Rooms in a Boom, some of the expansions, Countdown Action Edition, and Lindsay Road, friend of the show, she'll be on here again and again, whatever. I think we're done with table talk for now. Unless you have questions about Werewolf Legacy. You have any questions about Werewolf Legacy?
1: You stuck around for eight hours to play this game. So you liked it or there was just like a social pressure that once you had committed, you couldn't leave?
0: Here's the thing. I know Werewolf Ah.
1: Legacy
2: is...
0: (laughs) Sorry. Werewolf Legacy has gotten some heat. Some people complain about it. I will say... You just have to adjust your expectations. There's some wonderful mechanics that are introduced in a werewolf legacy. And without doing any plot spoilers, if you're getting into werewolf legacy because you really want to hear the story about a village slowly being transformed into werewolves or something, look somewhere else because the story isn't why we're there. In fact, my main complaint and pretty much only complaint really is that the story just doesn't really stick throughout if i were to ask any one of the players hey what's going on in the story right now in the middle of any game i'm pretty sure no one would be able to tell us what's going on maybe they say something like oh there's british officers now with that being said there's some amazing mechanics that come into play that aren't in any of the other werewolf games this is a little bit of a plot spoiler but this is one of the first things that comes out and i think it's brilliant Knowing that people are going to play werewolf again and again, they had this stone tower idol, this nice thick quality icon that someone got to hold that looks like a rook from a chess set. And you would get that if you were the first eliminated from the game. And then the next game, you can't be eliminated first, which is just brilliant because it saves that person the fear of, man, this sucks. I'm the first out twice in a row. So not only can they survive the daytime, but they also survive the nighttime, a full one round of werewolf. And I think that's really nice. It really softens the blow. And I think the only other thing I can mention without plot spoiling, for lack of a better term, would be... I think the note for anyone who's gonna make any future legacy games is you need to have the stakes up front of why you're playing. While playing the game, no one knew what was gonna happen based upon who won. It was a surprise. Oh, the villagers won? Uh, Well, now what does that mean? What happens? Instead, in a legacy game, you should be right up front at the beginning of every round what the consequences will be for which win condition. For example, if the werewolves win this round, then the town's gonna crumble and we're gonna go into descent. But if the villagers win, then we're gonna build a a forge so that we have swords. Yay! So knowing in advance what the consequences are of which faction wins would really emphasize what's going on in the game. Now, I can understand why they may refrain from doing that, because maybe a werewolf player would think, man, I kind of want to see what happens if the village wins. Hey, I'm a werewolf and you can kick me off. But I don't think that's the case knowing what I know now. I think they could have erred on letting people know what some of the consequences would be, what the stakes are as you're playing.
1: I think it's always good to increase buy-in to let people know what they're fighting for. Let me ask you, does does Werewolf Legacy require the same group? Is it important that you play with the same group over and over, like, say, Pandemic Legacy or Risk Legacy?
0: Not at all. Not at all. And I think a big part of that is because of the story not really mattering too much. If you were really invested in the story, I think with Pandemic Legacy, you'd be really bummed to come back and see that the game has changed exponentially because of what had happened from the games that you missed. But in this one, no. You can come in and come out. Plus, it plays up to 15 and there's a lot of wiggle room. So if you have 18 players, three players have to sit out. But you can have alternates. Let's suppose you have a game that only has 10 players and then 11th and 12th player comes up. Easily explained, there's families. And these are permanent characters that go from game to game to game. And sometimes families as a unit get abilities based upon winning or losing previous rounds. So you could be the Smiths. And maybe the Smiths succeeded. So now all the Smiths get a special ability where they can survive a single werewolf attack or something like that. So that's what's interesting. But realistically, I know that a lot of players thought, you know what, I want to try to be a different family member this round because I want to try one of the different family's abilities. Everyone allowed it. Everyone was cool with that unless that family was full up.
1: So the the narrative aspect fell down, had a crappy story. Did it have a... Competitive feeling? Could you feel like it was like Werewolf Tournament where you were really competing to win the overarching metagame?
0: No, and I think that's what was missing most. As I said, if you had the stakes going where, oh, if this faction wins again, then this faction's going to get another ability. I think in Werewolf, you can't really do that though because let's suppose there was one player that kept on getting these special abilities. Right away, people would dogpile on that character. Like, hey, we got to kill Lindsay right now. She won three games in a row and her character already has all these amazing abilities from winning the game. So whether she's a Werewolf or not, let's just make sure she doesn't win. So the game does a great job of making sure that this whole meta legacy story doesn't influence who you automatically go for or try to save because of the story. And I think that's a difficult balance that Bezier Games had to go through. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's interesting because I would almost go the other way, which is that that's just Werewolf's problem, is that people metagame it even if there's no legacy structure. They say, oh, that guy was a werewolf two games in a row. Let's just kill him now on the off chance that he is again, which like doesn't make any sense, but it's a pretty common part of the werewolf game. And while I think it's smart to fight against that, I definitely think in a legacy component of werewolf, you'd want to see who's winning or what teams are winning overall. Like if we were to do a two rooms in a boom legacy type of thing, you'd want this red, blue, gray sort of rivalry to be um built up so that people are making these metagame consequences where they're going, man, I've been on red team a lot recently, but blue teams ahead. I think I should slough this game or I should sandbag this game. Like you want to bring out those hard decisions that you have to make because of the overarching structure as well as competing in the game to game. But yeah, it's a hard design problem for sure. Um It sounds like they didn't stick the landing on it though.
0: Here's the amazing thing about it. The game's $70, I believe. And you think, holy shit, that's really expensive. But when you open the box, you pull out the highest quality thing I think I've ever seen in a game. And that is this leather-bound, heavy, huge ledger. Think of it as a gigantic, leather-bound, gold trim on the pages, choose-your-own-adventure type of ledger amazing because what you do is you turn to the first page and it has room for you to write in who's playing what characters and it helps you keep track as you're hosting the games of who's eliminated who's the werewolf who's the seer etc and then it tells you well if this faction wins then you turn to this page If this faction wins you turn to this page that thing is where all that money goes that's 70 dollar. in addition to that like i already said you have a high quality rook type component that someone holds that's so big and visual, you can't help but see it as you're looking around this circle of 15 players. And there's a ton of components like that. Like a plus plus on the component quality of Werewolf Legacy. Like, but Sean, let's move on. Ask me another question.
1: What's your favorite segment?
0: I would say it's Interaction Satisfaction. How hell? It's time for Interaction Satisfaction. Shoot us your emails, your comments, or your questions.
2: We'll do our best to answer them.
0: Interaction satisfactions, where we read emails. You ready for an email, Sean? Sure, hit me. This comes from Nick Botts. Hey guys, I'm a longtime gamer that's currently playing catch up on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the elevator pitches and table talk, but I want to point out that I get the biggest kick out of the hate you guys, intentionally or not, show some games, especially Seven Wonders. In closing, keep up the great work. Sincerely, Nick Botts. Nick a fan. He really likes it when we hate things. What's your opinion of Seven Wonders, Sean? I don't like it i hate seven wonders but i can understand the appeal seven wonders is one of those rare games when someone pulls out and they say hey you want to play seven wonders rarely do i do this but i would say no no i won't play seven wonders the rest of us are going to play seven wonders you don't want to play seven wonders no no thank you especially when there's so many better alternatives out there in my opinion What about you, Sean? Any games you really hate out there that if someone throws down in front of you, you think, I'm going to have to say no. We've talked about this a lot in the past. You should at least offer alternatives. If you're interested in Seven Wonders, why not play Sushi Go? Why not play whatever it may be? So anything that you hate, Sean?
1: It would really depend on the situation. Seven Wonders is a big one for me that I don't like, but man, I just don't, play enough games to hate a game with the passion of a thousand sons. There are a lot of games where I just see them and go like, ah, pass, that's not for me, which is like the biggest form of hate, which is complete indifference. There are a lot of just massive heavy games that are out there that are like that. But usually with a group, I'm down for a game. The difference is there are a lot of games I wouldn't be willing to run. If I had to run it for a group or teach it for a group, there are a lot of games where I'd be like, nah, I'm not going to waste the time teaching my nephew how to play Mage Wars, which is a game I love, but the buy-in is so high, I don't want to teach a nine-year-old how to play it.
0: In fact, that's the history. That's a great segue of how we met. Sean and I own Tuesday Night Games. Our claim to fame mostly is Two Rooms and a Boom, a game we designed together. Decided to Kickstarter. it. That's how we made a company together. But how did we meet? It was through Mage Wars. And you and I have taught so many people how to play Mage Wars throughout the years. And eventually, through teaching Mage Wars together at conventions, we said, let's stop teaching Mage Wars and start our own company.
1: <laughs> you probably are still teaching people how to play Mage Wars because you did the video tutorials, which I filmed and you performed in. And people still watch those on YouTube. So who knows how many people you've taught at this point?
0: Well, I think you're teaching it too because you were the editor and whatnot. So we both have a stake. So if they're learning through that, you got to give yourself credit. They're learning from you too. So Mage Wars, any other examples, Sean?
1: There's a lot of games that if it's been too long since I've played it, I'm not interested in looking up the rules on how to play it again. Like I really enjoyed Burgle Bros. And it's not a difficult game to play. But I know once I break it up, It's going to be another 10 minutes of me going like, hold on, Uh, everybody draw three. Hold on. That's me teaching Burgle Bros. As opposed to a game like Flamme Rouge, where it's like, no matter how long it's been, I'm generally always going to remember how to play it. And it might take a second to go like, how many of this do I deal out? Or like, what's the setup like? But the rules are very easy to remember. Same goes for Thunder Road these games that are very, very easy to pick up again and, and brush off and go like, um how many dice do we, oh, three. Okay, anyway, so you have these three dice.
0: You've nailed a big proponent of what really enables me to enjoy a game, and that is the reteachability. Because I've played some fantastic games, like Mage Wars, perfect example, that has too high of a buy-in. And there's been plenty of times where I thought, you know, I could really go for a game of Mage Wars right now. But as soon as I look at that tome of rules, I think... Well, fuck that takes too much effort. And so it just collects more and more dust on my table. But the games that come out and see the light of day are monikers and pitch deck and so many others that we love. Codenames is really easy because it takes seconds and it's fun light to learn. And I know that limits it a lot. I think that's also another reason why I have finally weighed the scales in favor of hate towards this game. I've said disparaging things about this game in the past And I know that I'm going to anger some people with this opinion. One of these games where so many people love it, but I think, what are you, fucking nuts? I don't really understand what the appeal is here anymore. And that is Mysterium. Mysterium has now garnered enough for me to say, no, I don't dislike that game. And it's not that I prefer other games more than that, which is true. I fucking hate Mysterium
1: (laughs) I almost bought Mysterium yesterday It's funny you bring that up
0: I'm really glad you didn't, even though I'm not you. Just because now when someone says, would you like to play Mysterium, it's more like someone asking, hey, do you want to go through an overly clunky game where you see some people frustratingly come up with these conclusions that are so amiss, so astray, that everyone's going to kind of get pissed off at them, and that person sometimes might be you. But, oh, wait, occasionally you may find that needle in the haystack that's right on. Oh, you're right, there is a small book in the corner of this picture, and therefore I was talking about green, because the book's green. What are you, what? What? I've always argued that there's other games better than it, like Deception Murder in Hong Kong. And other people have said, well, Mysterium's fully cooperative, and it has those gorgeous cards. Boom, solved. Deception, Mysterium in Hong Kong. All you do is you play Deception, but have it all cooperative. And instead of using the cards that come in Deception, you just use Mysterium cards. Boom, better game all around than Mysterium. You have everything you liked in Mysterium and more.
1: Do you like Dixit?
0: Yeah, I like Dixit. Yeah, that's totally different than Mysterium, yo. Totally different mechanic.
1: But it's similar in that they have beautiful cards. And there's that level of abstraction, right? Where you're going like, I picked journey and everybody else is putting their journey. So like the stakes are a lot lower because you're not trying to communicate.
0: Right, and it's quicker, boom, boom, boom. So with Dixit, it's the same thing over and over again. and You get the formula, but I get to tell you something in Dixit. In Dixit, I say BP, British Petroleum. And then you look at all these cards and everyone tries to guess which one is British Petroleum. But I've given you a hint. So imagine that differently in Mysterium where you don't see anything. You just give every single person a different card. Anyway, a lot of people love it.
1: I've only played it once and I I really enjoyed it. But I only played it me and the ghost person, which was a lot easier to corral the communication. Yes. Because he was aiming at me. It wasn't like one person. You had this in um in Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, you had a player who wanted to investigate a location that was never clued to at all. <laughs> right. You can have that in Mysterium, I imagine pretty quickly where somebody's like, "But what about this?" and it's like, "I don't know. I think this one's red and he's going red. I don't think he's going read a newspaper that's just that you're thinking way too hard about this
0: and you also nailed another problem with mysterium in my opinion not that i have to convince it. if you love and you have fun with mysterium don't let me ruin it that's not what i want to do all I want to do, I just want people to stop offering me Mysterium, basically like, hey, would you like to play Mysterium? Whatever. But what you nailed is it takes a long time between turns. If you're playing with a bunch of players, you have to wait for the ghost or ghosts in some cases that I've played where they have to decide which card do we give which players and there's a lot more waiting involved. And then that leads to a lot more Darison confusion.
1: It's a cooperative Rorschach test, which is difficult, <laughs> So that's probably why my experience is different than yours, is that I've only played it once, and so I'm not tired of it. But also, I've played it one-on-one, which was very, very simple, and was a lot more like, ooh, we're getting in tune. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to buy Mysterium, I'm just going to buy the Polish version to be a hipster about it.
0: (laughs) Sean, one thing we haven't talked about is the B team. Who's the B team? Well, we're running out of time, so it doesn't really matter. Let's move on. Okay, thanks for having our back, B-Team, making episodes when we can't. Who's Delton Brack? What does he do?
1: Delton Brack is our main podcast editor, and he also runs a really good podcast by Malthouse Games with his wife, Haley.
0: The Bracks! Yeah, so big thanks to them. And who's Captain Chessbeard, Sean?
1: Why don't we let him explain it himself? (laughs) Hmm.
0: Oi there, me mates. It be me, Captain Chestbeard. I be a pirate. Yar.
1: Thanks, Captain.
0: Here's the funny thing about Captain Chestbeard most people don't really have an opinion about Chestbeard. But then there's the very loud polarizing. It's basically on a scale of one to five. There's a few ones hating Chessbeard. There's a few fives that really love Chessbeard. And then I think most people are just like at a three. But if you have an opinion about Chessbeard that you want to share, please write us an email. Where, Sean?
1: Podcast at Tuesday Night Games.
0: Spelled with a K. Oh,
1: there was Chessbeard again.
0: But we haven't knighted anyone, so you ready to knight someone, Sean? Yes, let's hurry up. I'm pretty sure this is a shoe in because this is from Tyler Brown. You remember Tyler Brown? Oh yeah. Always at every convention. He's at Shocks. He's he's ever he hasn't been to XOXO Fest. We should probably try to get him to go to XOXO Fest because he's one of the most familiar faces. So I'm sure, regardless of the quality of this Nave tonight submission, we're gonna end up knighting him.
2: Here we go. Hi Ellen. Hi Sean. This is Tyler Brown from Laramie, Wyoming. thought I'd share a few of my gaming experiences with you. The first thing I remember about tabletop gaming is a cupboard in my grandparents' bathroom. It was an old, white, sizable cupboard full of games. Now, these were my second favorite grandparents. And they lived way out in the middle of nowhere. Seriously. Like half an hour from the nearest populated area. And by populated area, I mean something like 10,000 people. Even though that was my little kid mentality, and that they were my second favorite set of grandparents, that cupboard of games was the saving grace of visiting them. The cupboard was brimming with games. Things like Clue, Monopoly, old battered copies of whatever I can't even remember. And then there was Mastermind, which I loved, but was terrible at. When my grandmother passed away late last year, one of my first thoughts was of that cupboard and how she would let me win Mastermind, even though I am pretty sure she only did it so that I would feel like a particularly smart seven-year-old. My uncle was the most articulate, kind-hearted, and well-rounded human I've ever known. But he was also not exactly the most graceful of losers. Each time my uncle would visit, we would play risk my family would huddle around a table in battle. It was as much a family tradition as anything I've ever had. Family bickering, forming alliances, destroying each other, while we watched my uncle, either leaving the table a bit salty, or like some strange ritual, slowly crawling up from Australia to win. This was most Thanksgivings for me, for years. I was 27 the last time we played Risk, His sons had grown and had joined the table. Distance and time pulled these moments farther apart. When I got the call that he had unexpectedly passed away, I was thankful that I had seen him just a few months prior, that we had stayed up late, into the evening, playing Cosmic Encounter, as he beat me mercilessly. I work at a public library, and I run a weekly tabletop gaming night. Every Tuesday night. I've been doing it for about three years now. Eventually this branched off, and some friends and I decided that we needed a place in our small community to gather like-minded souls and play games. A month later, we ran a successful Kickstarter, and a few weeks after that, we opened our own business. A board game cafe, comic book store, arcade, bar, venue, restaurant we had a lot of hope. During that time, we ran a 24-hour gaming marathon for charity. It was an event where we gave away free games, raised money, invited the entire community to join us, stay up all night, and play games. Around 4 a.m., we played This House is Haunted in the dreary, drafty, leaky, electrical-wire-and-pipe-exposed, old, unused basement. And though the game wasn't particularly the best... That experience was one of my favorite gaming experiences I've ever had. And after two years, we closed the store.
0: After listening to that, I changed my mind. I think he's the first one we're not knighting ever. Pass. Hard pass. No, that was great.
1: Tyler is great. And that's exactly a great example of the kind of stuff we're looking for, which is just doesn't have to be life changing, though sometimes they are just good stories that you remember about your life as a gamer.
0: Yeah, and you don't have to edit them just so you know, he did not put in that music. He didn't put in the dramatic pauses. That was truth be told me, but you don't have to worry about that. But here's another fascinating thing, Sean. He mentioned this house is haunted. And you know what's interesting about This House is Haunted? Sponsors! Yay! Thank you for sponsoring us! Send us free stuff for money! And we'll talk about your stuff! But only if we like it!
1: ha <laughs> ha! Nothing.
0: It's a GameCrafter.com game. You can only get This House is Haunted on TheGameCrafter.com, which is a great example of how TheGameCrafter.com can be used as a publishing source. So instead of having to compete with distribution and whatnot and trying to get your games into Target and Barnes and & Noble, all those other places, or having your own online shop, you can just sell it straight away through TheGameCrafter.com. This house is haunted. We've talked about plenty of times on this podcast, and it's an annual tradition where I play it every year at my house. Thanks, (laughs) TheGameCrafter.com. All right, we should probably knight this guy, shouldn't we?
1: Yep, let's do it.
0: Well, what are we gonna call him? Just Sir Tyler? Hmm. Or Sir Tabletop Tyler? What? Sir Ponytail? ponytail tyler well, you don't get that the knaves
1: and knights at home don't know tyler has a ponytail sir ponytail sir tyler makes sense but i also like sir ponytail <laughs>
0: okay we'll just do that you didn't like sir tabletop tyler
1: tabletop tyler's all right it's long
0: it is long but so's is tyler oh! <laughs> approach we nobles and kneel to allow us to honor thee we on behalf of all knaves knights and nobles alike applaud thine heroic and likely contribution to this the tuesday night Podcast. allow us to dub thee sir tabletop tyler of the tuesday night podcast now rise rise sir tyler as the newest knight of the tuesday night gaming table yay Hopefully people don't feel too estranged to the show now. We also have lots of guests that come on the show, but I think we should end this thing. Don't you think, Sean? Absolutely. What are we supposed to end with? We're supposed to say, follow us on Twitter, at PlayTKG. And what's the best way that if someone listens to the show and says, you know, I kind of want to help out the show.
1: I want to contribute. They can review us on iTunes. It really helps out with people being able to find the show. It helps with our rankings. Please, please review the show if you haven't already.
0: With that, this episode is... Finished. It's actually a really good impersonation of John Hamm, Sean.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate that.